Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So there is a moment, there are moments as you're growing up where you're like having to think through what do you, what do you think you want to be doing? But it's just, I mean, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to go to the moon. I want to, you know, all kinds of things come out in that kind of dreaming state. But when it comes down to brass tacks, like, are you going to actually do this? Are you going to invest in your time and your energy um, in doing this thing? That's a whole other matter because you don't see the path between here and there. And so not seeing the path means you don't know if it's worth it to you to spend that, that capital that you have on that effort. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jessica, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this. Yeah, well, it is my pleasure to have you here. You know, I came across your story by way of our mutual friend, Terry Gentili, who uh, was a former guest here. And when she introduced us, I went and did some digging and I was like, oh my God, I'm like, you absolutely have to be a guest on our show. Uh, <laughs> your work is so fascinating to me. So rather than give it away for our listeners, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your journey, your background, how that has led you to all these amazing things that you're doing and this perspective that you have on storytelling? Yeah. Um, so I'm a cartoonist primarily, or I've always been a cartoonist primarily. Um, I also do a lot of other things, but, um, I've been making comics since I was in college and that's now a long time ago. So (laughs) I have a lot of, uh, a lot of comics under my belt and, um, that encompasses a lot of things for me. Um, I started off doing kind of very small quotidian, um, you know, very, uh, sort of realistically drawn short stories and then soon kind of moved into some doing some nonfiction, doing some reported stories, but, you know, short ones for the local newspaper called The New City in Chicago. And then back to fiction, I did graphic novel and then um, started teaching comics and, and with my husband, who's also a cartoonist, Matt Madden, we, we wrote two... Um, really giant textbooks about making comics um, and wrote another graphic novel and working on another one. And um, there's this other thread that is really relevant here, um, which is that I've done now two books about uh, radio and, you know, it's sibling uh, podcasting um, from the perspective of the narrative uh, narrative storytelling podcasts, meaning um, things in the model of This American Life and its inheritors. So um, I did a book in um, 1999 with Ira Glass called Radio and Illustrated Guide. It's a very short little um, magazine style comic book about how This American Life made their show, it, literally step by step. How do they go through, how do they get an idea, how do they vet those ideas, how do they report the stories, write them. Um, do the interviews, edit, do sound, and go on the air. I mean, everything in 30 pages. Um, And that book was co-written with Ira, um, but I also found it really um, interesting and inspiring um, work to do myself because it was was the first time I encountered a really strategic – approach to telling stories. So, so this is 1999. I had been making comics for about 10 years at that point. And it, making stories, constructing stories had always been just this enormous struggle for me. It had just been so difficult. Um, just, I would have ideas for sort of an interesting character or a situation or something. And I just would have no idea how to move forward from there. And for whatever reason, it just never occurred to me to go to the library and check out books on, I don't know, screenwriting or something. Like, there are books about this. You know, Aristotle wrote about this. Um, but I just never read those books and never sort of, in, even though I was an English major in school, like, never encountered any, any sort of structural work on how to make stories. And um, I had started kind of stabbing at it, um, not blindly, but almost, 
before I um, worked on this book with Ira, but once I worked with him and he has this very specific way of thinking about how stories should be put together and what works. And certainly then, you know, now I think he's opened out in so many different ways and the show is so different than it was in 99. But um, I found the, um, the structure really interesting and I don't think I realized it at the time, but it totally set me on a path at that point of investigating more and learning more about how does one build stories? How does one go about building stories in a, in a strategic and um, uh, thoughtful way? You know, how, how can you, when you're stuck, like what kind of tools do you have that you can apply to the problem? You know, mm-hmm. um, and that kind of strategic thinking was something I just was renewed to me. So fast forward, I don't know, it was about 11, 12 years later, um, I went back to Ira to say, hey, you know, I'd really like to do an update on this book. It's a more complicated story than that, but kind of boring. Um, And he said, oh, sure, you know, another 10 pages. And I was like, no, I'm thinking like a book book, like a book. (laughs) He was kind of like, yeah, no, that was really hard the first time around and I'm busy, so I'm not going to do that. And um, so we talked about it some more because he thought, you know, it's not like it was a terrible idea, but he just couldn't see kind of getting involved at the level that he had been before. And um, we talked about it and um, the idea came out, and I'm not sure if it was him or me or both, uh, really, uh, to really take a look at what was happening in radio at the time. So we're talking 2011, early 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, by then there's just this whole cadre of new shows that um, did essentially what we talked about in the end of Radio and Illustrated Guide, which is to take these basic tools, this basic structural approach, and um, run it through somebody else's creative mind, somebody else's view of the world and come up with something completely different. And so we went to, um, I went to, I think initially four other shows and then it sort of expanded out a little bit from that to about seven different shows or producers. Um, and, uh, went to talk to them about not specifically how do they make their show because we'd already covered that in great detail in radio and illustrated guide Mm -hmm. and the process, the literal process has not changed almost at all. You know, yes, the technology is updated, but the basic structure is the same, but what had changed or what, I mean, had changed, it hasn't changed this. It hasn't changed either, but what I didn't look into in the first place and came back to was this, uh, the underlying conceptual, um, structure of the storytelling. What, what do they think about when they're making stories? How did these great producers, and I ended up talking to I have 35 different producers, um, how do they go about making their work? How do they go about choosing the stories? How do they think about pulling threads together? Uh, what's important? What makes it good? What makes it different? You know, why is um, the moth as good, good as it is? You know, what did, the, what did those directors do to pull those stories out of the people who perform? Um, how do they develop those stories? Um, why can 99% Invisible do, you know, an entire episode on concrete benches and we're gripped? Like, what, what's their secret? And so that became a book that I, I um, brought out last August called Out on the Wire, The Storytelling Secrets of the New Masters of Radio. Um, and where I, I sort of broke it down into structural categories and, and compare and contrast all these producers' uh, approaches to their work. Um, I feel like it's sort of the culmination of this. Uh, I mean, that, that sounds like I'm done. I'm not done. But <laughs> culmination of many years of thinking about how stories work. Well, um, that raises lots of questions, as, as you might imagine. Uh, you, one of the things I, I like to ask everybody is about their childhood and looking back at formative experiences growing up, mentors, parents, influences that ultimately led them down the path that they ended up choosing. Because it seems like you figured out fairly early in your life that you were destined to do this thing. Uh, I think that's strongly worded. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, 
my childhood? Well, I, I do know that I've always been um, major uh, obsessive about stories, reading stories initially, not making them. You know, I don't, I didn't um, make comics as a, as a small child. I didn't um, write a lot of fiction. I didn't write poetry, you know, none of that stuff. A lot of people who become writers later did as teenagers. I did draw um, and I did do sort of some proto, you know, comics like things, but it sort of just didn't occur to me to try to make comics um, or to write, to write stories. I I don't know why not, Um, but I did read voraciously and just uh, had a tendency when I was younger to just lose myself in stories to the point where like, you know, I'd just walk around in a daze, you know, and in the shower, I'd be thinking about what was going to happen. And when I finished the book, it would take, you know, days and days for it to like leave me, you know, as I'd just be obsessing about what, what would happen to these characters after the story ended and, and so on. So that's probably a sign, I guess. Um, in terms of deciding to make comics, I feel like that's a complicated question because I don't know that I'm, um, actually destined to make comics because I find the process of um, breaking down story into images and going through the, all the labor of putting, you know, actually making the, the pages, making the images, um, not particularly joyful <laughs> often, you know, like I, I'm good at it. I know how to do it. And it's a, it's a skill that I have hard, you know, I've won through very hard labor and, um, I'm, I'm glad I have it, but it's some cartoonists just like some cartoonists sit around sketching in their sketchbooks all the time. Mm-hmm. Just drawing just flows out of them. It's just the way they live. Yeah. But for me, my creativity is like much more dispersed than that. I like to garden, you know, I like to build furniture. I like to, uh, you know, just write things. I like to talk to people. I like to, you know, teach. I like to speak. Um, and um, I can feel like when I was working out on the wire, I was on a very tight deadline. I felt very, very constrained by the process of having to, you know, once I had gone through, you know, a year of research and a year of writing to spend another year taking what I'd already basically processed, mm-hmm. you know, um, in terms of the writing and make that into drawings was just like, oh, man, really? <laughs> you know? Which any cartoonist can identify with. There's always a point at which you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I had another 100 pages to draw. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, all that said, um, it's, it's a complicated question. You know, it's not, I don't, I don't feel like I'm either destined or not destined for it. It's like, it's what I chose to do and I, I threw myself into it early enough that um, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> let me just put it this way. When I watched the first um, season of True Detective, um, the one line that stuck with me from this whole thing was near the end, one of the last couple episodes, where um, Rust says, um, be careful what you get good at. Hmm. You know, we really only have time to get really good at one thing in our lives, so be careful what you get good at. And, um, and I, I think about that sometimes when I'm in the middle of a giant comics project. Interesting. Do you think everybody has uh, this one thing that they're able to get good at or capable of getting good at, like exceptional at in their lives? No, actually, that's what I'm saying is I feel like I could have gotten good at a lot of other things. Right. And I am pretty good at a lot of other things, um, maybe not at the same level. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not known at the same level for a lot of other things. But, you know, I realized at some point um, when I was in my early 20s, like, I'm really good at uh, organization. Like, I would have made an excellent um, movie producer, you know, or like a contractor, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who has to do, um, you know, has to, has to st- strategically think about many different people's roles in, um, in a job. Uh, so like, that's a skill that is in, like completely not used when I'm making a comic book. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, on the other hand, what I'm doing right now in terms of, uh, you know, sort of my new new direction, new stuff I'm working on, new book I'm working on is this thing about 
um, creative productivity, like it's completely useful there where I'm helping other people figure out how to get their mm-hmm. creative work happening. So it's not that I'm never going to use it. And maybe, so maybe that quote is um, a little too dire because <laughs> I, you know, I, I feel like I'm able to get good at a few things, maybe not only one. Yeah. When you look back over, um, your body of work, is there a thread or a theme that you think runs throughout the work? And, uh, how do people find that in theirs and in their, their work? Well, you know, interestingly, um, there are a couple different points at which I've realized that they, I have themes and they're very different themes that, you know, like the, the whole thing of, of investigating how stories work is a huge theme in my work that goes through like all my nonfiction. So it goes from, um, from Radio and Illustrated Guide in 99 and then through teaching and developing materials to teach comics because I taught for I guess, uh, 12 years at the School of Visual Arts in New York and I keep teaching, you know, I'm on, teaching online at the School uh, California College of Arts right now in their master's program. Um, so that teaching process is like a theme and teaching how to, how to break down constructing stories and, and figuring out how to convey that to students is, is a big thing. So then when we made our textbooks, Drawing Words and Writing Pictures and Mastering Comics, you know, that was a, an expression of that. And then of course out on the wire. So that's one big thing, but you know, a completely different unrelated theme was something I discovered really only through doing interviews, I think, or being interviewed rather, um, when I was doing interviews about, um, probably about La Perdida, my uh, graphic novel, or maybe about Life Sucks, the, the one that I did the script for. Anyway, there, there are two books there. So La Perdida is a book about um, a woman named Carla Olivares who moves to Mexico City kind of on a whim. She has a, an estranged Mexican father, but she doesn't speak Spanish and doesn't know anything about Mexico. And she has these kind of really um, blinkered views about what um, what it means to be Mexican and and what she's going to find there and what kind of experience she's going to have, which causes incredible distortions in how she perceives people around her and, and how she thinks that they should approach, you know, how they should relate to her. And she misses this whole um, part of the story, which is uh, the power dynamic between Americans and Mexicans um, that just exists and that you have to acknowledge and deal with to deal honestly um, especially when you're an American abroad in Mexico and, you know, you're not talking about somebody of Mexican origin who's American, but you're talking about like, you know, I speak English, I have a passport, you know, whatever, like those kinds of issues. She's just like, uh, I'm not, I don't want to deal with any of that stuff. Um, and then when I did this book, Life Sucks, which I co-wrote with Gabe Soria and it's drawn by another person, um, Warren Police, that's a book about, um, young vampires in love. <laughs> it's a romantic comedy about vampires set in LA but the whole um, premise of it is that this guy, uh, Dave, the main character, is a vampire who was created as a vampire by this old world master in order to be the night manager of the master's 24-hour convenience store. Because in our mythology of vampires, like whoever your master is, you literally have to obey. Like Physically, you have to obey them. So he's being forced to be a wage slave, essentially, um, by his master. And... Um, the, you know, the funny thing about this is that these two books have a lot in common in the sense that they both turn out to be about class. And this is like, by looking at Life Sucks compared to La Perdita and like, how did I go from one to the other and doing interviews and talking about those two books? It was like, oh, I have a basic theme that I'm writing about, which is class, you know, and then now my new book, my new not fiction book, which is um, Trish Trash, Roller Girl of Mars again, is about class. It's about a, bun- a class of basically indentured laborers who are stuck on Mars and, you know, are fighting back against the corporation. Why? <laughs> you know, I was not raised in a socialist household. It's like I've not been, I, I, you know, I'm not a red diaper baby. I don't know why this matters to me as much as it does, but clearly it does. Because when I look back through all this different work that I've done, the most passionate um, stories that I've written, the ones that are like sustained me for years because they take so long to do have had that at their core. Isn't that weird? Yeah. So the thread, um, I've really wondered about this because it took me a really long time to even arrive at the conclusion of unmistakable. Um, 
probably the better part of four or five years before we're like, this is the message that we want to share with the world. I, I'm wondering, you know, what that looks, do you think it's something that you can only see in retrospect, uh, kind of like that whole Steve Jobs thing with the dots only connecting in reverse, or do you think that you can figure it out while it's happening? I think you can guess at it while it's happening. Yeah. Um, but I don't think you can really know until you've done a lot and then it's still happening. I mean, you're making this thing now, right? Yeah. So it's not like you, it's all done and you're looking back in retrospect, you're still in the middle of it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it takes a long time. You know, if you'd asked me at 25, what I would be doing now, I certainly would not have guessed that I'm doing nonfiction about storytelling and fiction about class issues. Like that's just ridiculous. You know, who plans that? Uh, who, who, who thinks that kind of way, you know, ahead of time, like you have to find those threads in, in what, in what appears, you know, yeah. what comes out. I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's, there's certain issues that draw us forward and then, uh, you know, I, there, I feel like there, and I'm trying to think of there. I think of a really good example, but I feel like there's times when I've sort of staked out an area and been like, I want to do this, and then I start doing it, and I can I can functionally do it, but it never feels right. And then at some point, I figure out, oh, that's because I completely am not interested in this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not a an activity I really want to get into. And you have to pay attention to that. Like you have to feel that in yourself. And when you're doing like the kind of work you do and the kind of work I do that's highly creative work and very, very demanding, uh, it's not about passion and about like getting up in the morning feeling joyful. You know, that's like, that's a dream, but it's not reality. But it, it is about um, uh, expressing something central about your relationship with the world. And feeling the satisfaction and the and some clarity around the thing that you want to talk about, and I think that's why there's a lot of flailing at the beginning of people's creative careers because they're like trying a bunch of different stuff to see which thing fits. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because you're right. I mean, I would have never figured my exploration of the world and, and what I want to say about it would manifest in this form. Right? How could you? I mean, the. the I mean, the form didn't even exist. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, like, um, yeah, it, it, things like, I feel like my path to maybe not to what I'm doing, like literally right now with this, um, with the teaching of, um, systems, but like what I've been doing in the last, whatever, 15 years of, um, teaching comics and writing about comics and writing comics and making comics, like, it looks like like a path laid out with a ruler, you know, like it's such a straight path. And yet I could never have pictured where it was going. And I was on the other side of it, you know, before I got there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's really interesting because, you know, I went out of college thinking very much in a sort of straight and linear path mindset. And I, I've realized how untrue that is And yet I think the notion that our lives aren't linear and that there's going to be uncertainty causes people a tremendous amount of anxiety. I know because it's caused me an immense amount of anxiety. Um, I'm just curious, you know, what you have to say about that, given the length of your career and, 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 you know, the things that you've done and, and, you know, the people that you've been around. I think it does cause an immense amount of anxiety. um, And I think rightfully so in a sense, because the, you know, the choices are consequential. I mean, little things that you do experiments there, it's fine, you know, but, um, you know, you can play around a little bit here and there, but if you start like really investing your time and your energy in something and it turns out something that you just don't want to be doing, or you can't figure out how to make a living at it or whatever, I mean, that's, it's scary, you know? And there's also the functional problem of getting yourself, like figuring out how you're actually going to functionally make your work. Like how are you going to get yourself to sit down in the morning and get this stuff done? I know you talk about this a ton with all kinds of different people who come on your show. Mm-hmm. It's our obsession. And, um, and I think it dovetails directly with this anxiety that we have about um, 
where our path is headed. You know, it's all about uncertainty. Like we don't even know where our path is headed today, you know, much less in five years or 10 years or 15 years. And, and that's why people default to day jobs and to careers that are sort of have some kind of linear sense. And that's, I think, why a lot of people feel really a lot of anxiety about work in general right now is because even day jobs don't have that linearity anymore. Um, but, you know, we're not prepared for this. Nobody prepares you to figure all this stuff out on your own as you're growing up. I mean, sure, your parents are like, yeah, do, you know, follow your dreams, do whatever, you know, like I want, maybe some people's parents are anyway, but like, you know, the people in school say, well, what do you really want to do when you grow up? And you can, if you work hard, you can do it and so on. So there's a moment, there are moments as you're growing up where you're like having to think through what do you, what do you think you want to be doing? But it's just, I mean, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to go to the moon. I want to, you know, all kinds of things come out in that kind of dreaming state. But when it comes down to brass tacks, like, are you going to actually do this? Are you going to invest in your time and your energy um, in doing this thing? That's a whole other matter because you don't see the path between here and there. And so not seeing the path means you don't know if it's worth it to you to spend that, that capital that you have on that effort. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Definitely. Like if the, the more vague the path is to between like me and successful author, yeah. the less it likely it is I'm actually going to start out on that path because I don't know that I can get there. Like I don't see, it's not clear, you know? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Uh... Yeah, well, and the odds are pretty staggering. I remember sitting down with my editor for the first time. I said, how many people get, like, how many of the thousands of blogs and projects online end up here um, getting to do this? And she said, it, it, the numbers are incredibly low. It's like one in 5,000 or something ridiculous like that. Well, that seems high to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, considering the number of blogs there are in the yeah, world. Yeah, maybe, maybe that is, yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe that is high. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but, but, and then, but I think you have to go a step further than that because I'm somebody who's been a published author now, yeah. you know, from major, major publishing companies for, you know, 10 years. And um, I can get a book published. You know, if I, I have an agent, I can, if I have an idea, he'll find a way, you know, whether it's like going to be a good sale or not is another issue, but like, you know, we'll find a way. Um, I also know how to self publish. You know, I have all these, these skill sets. Doesn't mean I can figure out how to make that my life, yeah. you know, financially. Um, it's, it's real iffy, you know? So like a lot of people focus on the, get the book published part. Um, to me, that's the smallest part of the problem. Like then how do you keep going on this and, and make it work long-term? Yeah. I, I would really love to hear about the conceptual story structure that goes into all these things that, uh, have become sort of mainstays and, and sort of mainstream staples of our culture at this point. Uh, based on the the background and perspective you have, and then of course talk about how we can apply some of those to our own work. Uh, you mean the sh- the radio shows? Yeah, podcasts. Yeah. Okay, so so we're talking about uh, radio shows, and I mean when I talk about radio, I basically am including podcasts because they're very different in how they work, and yet, uh, you know, all all the shows that I uh, talked about in the book have podcasts or are podcasts, you know, one or the other. So, and also I think the word podcast is just so dumb. I just can't even, (laughs) (laughs) as a cartoonist and we have like, we have always had the dumbest name of a medium, you know, movies, not great novel, something new. That's not great either. You know, like none, none of the names are really any good comics. It's not funny. Not very funny podcasts. Oh boy. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, so um, when I say radio, I mean podcasts, and let's just take it from there. Um, but so the basic, so the basic underpinning uh, or the basic kind of radio and podcasting that I talk about is what you call um, narrative journalism. And the reason it's called that is because it's not just, it's reported, generally speaking. Some of these things are memoirs or whatever. They're not reported. But for the most part, these are reported stories where there are interviews that go into them, there are facts, there's, you know, stuff like that. But it's then constructed or reconstructed into something resembling a a fictional story structure. So um, when you think about uh, Radiolab or This American Life or 99% Invisible, The Moth, you know, these these are shows that are all in the book, they all have their best stories, generally speaking, all have a central character who goes through changes and, um, and comes to some kind of real, has, has realizations as a result of that. And the reason this is so powerful, this, this approach is so powerful, is that it, is, um, it ties right into our basic uh, need for stories, just plain up, you know, straight up stories, but it also gives the listener an entry point into the ideas um, either as a, you know, the character can be kind of stand-in or avatar for the, for the, the reader, I mean the listener, or um, you can also, you know, depend on empathy and just depend on um, our curiosity and empathy, you know, about other people. And so that is the essential feature that makes these stories 
in these shows as gripping and compelling as they are. Um, of course, then they have to be good stories and told well. But like at, at the essential level, it's the the difference between um, most podcasts we listen to, uh, most radio we listen to, um, is people talking about stuff without any structure. These shows have incredibly thought through, careful structure. Uh, so that's number one. Um, and then the, the book goes through several chapters. Um, and I don't know if you want to like go through them. I mean, do you have questions about specific stuff? I'd like to go through, through sort of the the step-by-step structure, um, as deep as we can get without giving the entire thing away. If you can do that in the next 30 minutes, which I realize is a big question. I can try. (laughs) So the, the, in the book I laid it out, um, and this is not necessarily how the producers themselves think about how they build these stories, but I laid it out conceptually sort of in, in order of the elements that you need to make a great story. So first of all, you have to have a really good idea, right? And so um, there's always this question that comes up um, for fiction writers, and I think it comes up for, for these the producers as well. It's like, how do you get your ideas? And basically the answer that I came up with, and, and we haven't mentioned this yet, but I actually made my own podcast about the book. So getting super meta here. Hmm. Um, and the first episode, first two episodes of that, of my podcast are about this idea of like, how do you get ideas? And, and the way I put it in the podcast um, is you pay attention to your attention. That's how you do it. You really try to, uh, calm the inner critic who tells you you're an idiot when you think about whatever it is that you're interested in. You try to pay attention to the things like the anecdotes you're telling your friends, the things that you're thinking about in idle moments between other stuff. Um, what, what are the stories or characters or topics or, uh, news items or whatever it is that you keep coming back to? And you pay attention to that attention and you go deeper into it. So then you go into research. And this can be for fiction or nonfiction. It's the same, same thing. You pay attention to what will feed you for long enough as a writer to, um, to really uh, dig into it. And that's also how you get stuff that's original. Because even though... If it's interesting to you, it's probably interesting to many people. You know, you may hit on a topic that's been covered many times before. You, as a unique individual, will have your own take on it. And so you have to really, like getting deep is the way you say something new. If you just kind of skim along the surface, you're not going to say anything new. So from there... um, there's, so once you have an idea that you, you feel like you are confident in, that you've, it's something that you've spent some time with, you've done some research on, you have kind of a, a basic idea of the um, landscape of this idea, then you start to give it some structure. And this is where different producers really, they go at it different ways. Like the, I have a couple different structures that several producers have told me about. Um, but for the most part, I think people who are in this position of, you know, if they're producers at Radiolab or something like that, they mostly don't think about it in this, like, um, formulaic kind of way. And in fact, everybody, most people I talk to, I'd say, like, well, what do you think about the focus sentence? And they'd say, oh, that sounds okay, but it's not that simple. Like, they just didn't <laughs> want to let me, you know. I was like, I know it's not that simple, but does it sound kind of right? And they're like, yeah, and it is right. Yeah, but it's not that easy. So, um the focus sentence, which I got from Rob Rosenthal at the Transom Story Workshop, which is a really um, excellent um, training program for narrative journalism producers, um, is someone does something because, but. And so the idea of uh, the focus sentence is that you fill it in with your protagonist, someone does something. So somebody in motion who has some kind of um, role in the world. And um, they're doing that thing because of something. And the because is their motivation. Um, and then the but is what stands in their way. And that's the heart of your story. 
And then anybody who writes fiction will recognize this as essentially a narrative, the, the basis of a narrative arc. It's not a full narrative arc, but it's like, you know, get to your inciting incident with that. Um, and for nonfiction, it's the same thing. Like what, you know, an interesting story, you know, you can, you can talk about a, um, like a gardener, um, who, uh, works in uh, municipal gardens or something like that. And that might be really interesting. It might be somebody who talks really interestingly, super great character, and you're really interested in this thing. But um, if you don't have the because and the but, you don't have much, you know? Why does he work in the gardens? Well, he works in the gardens because um, he has to be in fresh air for 12 hours a day or he gets ill. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like something off the wall and you're, you're onto something like something a little bit unexpected and you really can, can get somewhere with it. Um, and, uh, and then there's another, uh, structure that is, um, that I learned from Alex Bloomberg, um, who's now of Gimlet Media, but when I was doing the book, he was at Planet Money, um, which is the XY story formula. So the XY story formula is I'm doing a story about X and what's interesting about it is Y. Um, which is a much simpler approach, um, but is more useful at this stage when you're dealing with idea-based nonfiction. You know, so if you don't have a central character to your story or you don't have a character yet, you don't know who the character is going to be, the XY story formula is going to be more useful. And what that does is it lets you say, I'm doing a story about um, a manufacturer of whiteboard pens, you know, whatever like it's a topic it's a thing and you can totally imagine a um news item of three minutes you know on um all things considered it's like oh this manufacturers you know things are booming because everybody loves whiteboards blah 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 you know or some kind of whatever like it's a topic um but with the why um what's interesting about it is that's where you get to the reason why you're going to tell this story, right? So you take the topic and you turn it one way or another and you try to figure out what makes this more than just a kind of like commodity news item. Um, you know, this manufacturer is the one who um, invented wipe off boards because he couldn't spell, you know, or like, um, I don't know, he needed to erase messages um, because he was a spy in the war. Uh, I don't know, you know, I'm making stuff up off the top of my head. But the point being that you, you have to find that angle on the story that makes it more than just, um, just the, the topic, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's where most people stop is with the topic. Yeah. And in fact, I apply this all the time when I'm writing blog posts. Mm-hmm. I think about the XY, like most times when I'm writing a blog post. I'm like, okay, I'm writing a blog post about... Um, you know, how to break down your tasks into, you know, little, little bits. And what's interesting about it is that um, breaking it down like this, it can, it seems like it's going to be a huge amount of work, but it makes everything super clear. Like you just, you don't know what you're doing until you, until you start doing that. And then I'm listening to this and myself say this and I'm going, that's not a good why. I need a better why than that. And, you know, you have to rewrite it until you get it right. You know, you get the right thing. Yeah. So two questions come from that. Um, one of the things I'm always interested in and in looking at is how one art form influences the other, especially people who have uh, done, you know, fairly deep work in two, two multiple art forms. So I'm curious how the, the comic and storytelling background has influenced your perspective on podcasting and vice versa. Um, well, I think the... Uh, my doing the comics about radio um, and podcasting has been uh, very enlightening about what goes into that process um, and uh, really has opened my eyes to what that, um, what it entails and how much thought goes into it. And then when I listen to the stories, you know, I just have a much more educated kind of appreciation for them. And that's been really great. But I've also thought a lot about the ecosystem of podcasting mm-hmm. as a result of um, working on this book. And, and it's a part of the book that kind of didn't make the book. You know, there was like a whole bunch of stuff I wanted to talk about platforms and the difference, you know, between different platforms, but it was so, 
it didn't fit the kind of overall approach of like storytelling secrets. It was kind of like a sideline. So it kind of just didn't happen, which is too bad because I really do feel like there, you know, there are significant differences between radio and podcasting, between podcasting and comics, between um, prose and comics, you know, there's all the different platforms. They have an influence on the kind of stories they get told. So, you know, for example, in the kind of narrative um, uh, audio storytelling we're talking about, um, it excels in um, conveying emotion, for example, through voices. Um, it does not excel in conveying details. Yeah. Um, comics are excellent uh, in similar ways at um, conveying emotion and um, lots of lots of information through nonverbal storytelling. So you know through uh, what's in a scene and then, and people interacting with the scene, people interacting with each other, facial expressions, those kinds of things. Um, again, comics not excellent at a whole bunch of factual details um, and not, uh, you know, you could do it, but it's hard and it's can be tough reading. Um, and uh, same with audio, you know, you can do it, but it can make for real tough audio. Um, and, you know, just thinking about these different platforms and comparing them together, you know, um, what's, there are many, many differences and many, you know, strengths that, you know, each, each medium has its own strengths. But what's been cool for me is actually to kind of ignore that and just do it anyway, <laughs> you know, translate from one to the other to the other, you know. So, like, I've actually taken, you know, audio and prose and converted it into comics in, in Out on the Wire and then taken Out on the Wire and converted it back into audio on my podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and each time, new things come out, you know, and it becomes this kind of um, many faceted um, piece of, I don't know, there's just so much, there's so much richness in the different ways you can express something. Yeah. It's interesting. It kind of reminds me of us taking segments of our interviews and translating them into animated shorts or, yeah. you know, visual things that, that we've done, which you, you would have never guessed in a million years when we started that that's what would come out of them. Yes. I mean, it's not necessarily like um, the most, it's not, it's not a logical yeah. Know, next step, but it is, a, it, it does make sense. You know, like I, in out on the wire, you know, there's sequences where I'm drawing audio stories. Like there's a sequence where I actually draw a radio lab story. And the point of the sequence is to talk about the sound effects. Yeah. Okay. That try to think about that for a second. The point <laughs> of this four page sequence yeah. of drawn comics in black and white is to talk about sound effects. So yeah, it's, um, but I think it's successful. You know, it's, it, it expresses the sound effects in a really, um, uh, you know, at a, at a, at a gut sort of emotional level because of the way they're placed in the panel, because of the way the the drawing, you know, the drawing changes and you sort of, you can kind of, I'm expressing the internal state of the character that he's describing and that, Jad described via sound, I'm describing it visually, you know, the best would be to like listen to it and read it at the same time. That would be that. That would be the top. That would be, that would, that would really be making it. <laughs> so two final questions for you. Um, one is what you learned about mastery and success from working, uh, closely with somebody like Ira Glass. I think in general, what I've learned about, um, making the kind of work that we make is what I do, what he does is just, it's like this intense focus and, you know, it's grit. It's like you stick with it through the tough times, you know, um, the work is, it can be backbreaking. I mean, that's whatever. It's not backbreaking. We're not minors. It's, it can be brain breaking. Let's put it that way. And it can be depressing. It can be so difficult. Um, but, you know, you just have to focus and keep going. You know, you just stick with it and keep, keep making it happen. Um, 
And you have to keep doing that for so long. You know, people think that you can kind of shortcut to this stuff. I mean, there, you can, I, I, and I absolutely, I absolutely encourage this. You can make some comics and get them up online, you know, on Tumblr in like a week. You can, you can be a cartoonist. You can make a mini comic in, you know, a month. Um, and I think it's a great thing to do. It's absolutely awesome. Um, but you're not going to be a great cartoonist until you've done that for several years. Uh, maybe a lot of years, maybe never, you know, but probably you're going to get there if you keep really chipping away at it. Um, but it could take a really long time and you have to have that self-belief and you have to have that, you know, basically stubbornness, I think, to just get through it. I mean, Ira does this talk all the time where he, he plays this one clip of himself when he was an NPR reporter, when he was in his early twenties. Um, and he was doing this terrible little news clip, um, and he makes fun of himself and whatever. And it's part of his, his whole shtick about um, the gap. You know, he has this video on YouTube yeah. where he talks about the, the, the creative gap. And um, Ira was, a, you know, even at a, as a very young man, was a, you know, incredibly creative and ambitious person. But he did not have the skill set. He had to build it. And it took years. Um, and he just did it anyway. So, you know, the people who I see who are um, incredibly successful at making their work, it's because they have focus and they um, have a kind of stubbornness and a kind of, like, unjustified optimism about where they're going to get with it, you know? I mean, initially unjustified. It's like, who knows what's going to happen, but they stick with it anyway. You know, you look at somebody like Stephanie Fu, who is in Out on the Wire and just an amazing radio producer. And I just think she's so awesome. She's at uh, This American Life now, but she used to be at Snap Judgment. When she was at Snap, she was like, she showed up at Snap um, as an intern at the age of 20 or something. Twenty. I mean, she graduated from college. Maybe she was twenty-one. With Twenty story ideas, story pitches on the first day as an intern. Within like a week, she was making a story, even though it wasn't part of her job. And within three months, she was hired as a producer. And you know, for she she did something like on the order of one hundred and eighty audio stories in the three or four years she was at Snap. She was a machine, and now she is incredible. And she's only like 27 or something, you know, but she crammed it all in. Like for me, it took more like 15 years to get through that amount of stuff. Um, I didn't, I didn't have the amount of energy that she did, but um, you see that and you say, oh yeah, that makes sense. I don't want to discourage people who are trying to do this though, because it doesn't take being an incredible Stephanie Fu Mm -hmm. to get there, but you do have to um, build, you know, ways of, um, getting to work on a daily basis that are built around um, your creativity, built around the way that you work and the way that you think. And, and you have to do it and you have to like stick with it. Yeah. So I have one other question about this that, that, that raised actually when you said that the unjustified optimism. Uh, you think certain people just have that uh, and that they come out of the gate with that even when they start their work and certain people just don't? Probably, yeah. I mean, I think probably there are certain people who do have that, and that's a it's a basic advantage. But I don't think that you you ha- that that's a prerequisite. Yeah. You know, I think that um, you know, I'm working with people now um, in all different areas. I'm working with people who are um, cartoonists and and podcasters and novelists and you know, all, in all these different creative areas, and um, helping them put together their systems for making their work, making you know, actually getting the work done um, on a regular basis. And um, it's really interesting to me because people are so different. You know, everybody is so different. And like the, the, um, the things that they struggle with are not necessarily the things I struggle with. You know, I have that stupid optimism where I'm like, yeah, I'll just do it. I'm going to do that thing. And then when I'm like halfway in it, I'm like, oh, geez, that was not a good idea. But um, there are other people who they let it, many people, you know, they let that stop them just stop them cold. And so, um, you know, they need to build in more fail safes, you know, and you have to have this kind of individual system based on like who you are. Um, 
like if you're somebody who needs that kind of external validation, a lot of people are, and there's nothing wrong with that. It just is who you are. And people feel super guilty about it. They feel like that's not okay to have this um, need for, you know, external deadlines or external validation because they think it should come from within. Well, I mean, it'd be nice if it came from within. That would be handy. But if it doesn't, like, don't waste time beating yourself up about it. Just find a way to get it, you know, set it up somehow so that, like, somebody's waiting for you to turn something in or, you know, somebody's going to be there and say and clap their hands when you get the thing finished or whatever, you know, whatever it is that you need, you have to build around that. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, I knew you were going to ask me that question because I've listened to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what am I going to answer that? Because um, that's a tough one. It's yeah. really tough. Um, I feel like, um, you know, some of the stuff we were just talking about, the idea of, you know, intense focus and, um, uh, you know, curiosity and openness to the world um, can make somebody um, unmistakable, somebody unforgettable, like somebody who's really, really curious and really just like wonders about the world and just wants to get engaged in it is somebody who I would find unmistakable. Um, they're the people I remember, you know, when I think of the word unmistakable, that's, that's kind of what I mean is like, really memorable people that you stick with you, you know? Um, yeah. And that would stick with me. Um, and I think that that, you know, that's reflected in the, in the great, um, report, the great producers that I talked to and also in, you know, other creative people that I've worked with, you can see it in people, you know, you see that spark in their eyes and like they start talking about something and it just is like, it doesn't matter what they're interested in. You know, they're just way in and you just want to know about it. You want to know more. Um, and there's just this kind of like, I don't know, it's a sense of commitment, I guess, to, to what they care about, whatever that thing is. I mean, I can listen to people who I just completely disagree with. If they're super into it, it's interesting. Well, uh, this has been really, really phenomenal. Uh, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your stories and your insights with our listeners here at the unmistakable creative. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Yeah, my pleasure. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that next time on the unmistakable creative. Now we've had hard things happen and we've had glorious things happen and we just try to be fully present every day and, and not, and, and not take on a pitiful, self-focused narcissistic mindset and um, work hard at making sure we understand that in every obstacle is an opportunity. Nancy Duarte joins us to talk about how to ignite change through speeches, stories, ceremonies, and symbols. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.